one of the things you may or may not know about me, when I was growing up, I was a Boy Scout. Yep, I was a Boy Scout. I had all the merit badges on the little sash thing, the thing that figured out. Uh, there was this one year as Boy Scouts, our leader said, hey, we're going to go on, on a camping trip. And we're going to go up to Rimrock Lake. And we're going to go up to Rimrock Lake. We're going to stay overnight. And then we've got the scavenger hunt where we had to use a compass and try and figure out how to navigate that, which was really, uh, it was a learning experience for us. And uh, so as our leaders, they said, hey, we're going to go get this set up. We want you to get the fire started. Now, I had the merit badge that said fire starter or whatever it happened to be. And so we knew how to start a fire. So we got the rocks and we built a little fire ring on the beach uh, at Rimrock. And, and we built this little fire. We're like, this is great. This is so fun. But then if you've been to Rimrock, we look across the lake and there's more campgrounds across the lake. And we're like, hey, we got an idea. We can do smoke signals. Like, seriously, now here's the thing. Like, boys, there's something about boys in fire. And there's something about preteen boys where I know they have a brain, but for some reason it seems like sometimes that brain is just miraculously, miraculously disappeared, right? And so we decide we're going to build these, 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 these smoke rings and get the attention of whoever's across the lake. The problem is our fire wasn't big enough. So we go off into the woods. We find big branches lots of wood, and we put it on this little fire ring. It expands all over, and we're like, now we're going to get a big fire, big smoke rings, right? And we're there, and we're trying to, to, to do our smoke signals and get attention, and all of a sudden, we see our leaders coming, and they're running, like full speed. We're like, what's going on? This flame had started in this little campfire. was now 10 feet tall, and it could be seen from quite a distance, there was quite an issue here, and they come in, and, and uh, I think I got, um, uh, man, if there was like a, a merit badge for getting in trouble, I got it that weekend. It was terrible. We got in so much trouble from those leaders. In fact, that night, uh, we had gone home, uh, and that night, I'm sitting around at home, and, and I'm like, what's this smell? It smells like something's burning, and my mom says, well, have you seen yourself in the mirror? Because my eyebrows, my hair, it was all singed. It was all singed all over the place. I smelt like burnt hair because I got too close to that 10-foot fire because that's what boys do. Fire itself is, is a good thing, right? Fire is useful for many things. Fire as well can be very beautiful. But on the same side, fire, when it's misused, is incredibly dangerous. And that's what my leaders are trying to teach us that weekend, that fire is great and useful and necessary, but it is incredibly dangerous. In fact, isn't there many things in God's creation, things that God has given us that are good, that, that are beautiful, gifts that God has given us, but we as sinful people, with a sinful nature, we take these gifts that God has given us and use them in ways that God never intended, and it becomes dangerous for us. That we choose, instead of maybe to, to worship the creator for the gifts that he's given us, soon what we do because we're sinful people is we worship the creation instead of the creator. This morning, if you have a Bible, we're going to be in the book of 1 Corinthians, a series we've been in for the last couple of uh, weeks. Uh, the city of Corinth, where this church is, was probably very much like our culture. Uh, where, 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 where the city of Corinth had taken the gift of sex that God ha had given them, something that was given by God that was beautiful, and they had distorted it. They used that gift uh, for ways that it was never intended to. In fact, they had this struggle where, where sex was something to be worshipped. 
And where instead of worshiping the creator, they worship the gift that God had given them. See, I'd say Corinth was probably very much like our day and age, where promiscuity is, is welcomed. It's almost, it's almost as if sex is worship in their culture as well in ours. I mean, we have this idea that you can sleep with whoever you want, whenever you want. doesn't really matter. Just do you. You do you. I'll do me. You do whatever you want to do if it feels right. Well, here's the issue is Paul comes into the city of Corinth and he plants a church and says, listen, we're going to follow Jesus. And as he's, he's, he's leading people to follow Jesus, they realize, hey, maybe this following Jesus, uh, maybe it begins to rub against the way our culture views how we're supposed to live. And specifically, it rubs against the way that the culture viewed sex. And so Paul starts this conversation uh, with the church at Corinth and the church at Restoration and the church in general. Paul starts this conversation about sex and marriage and divorce. And let me be clear, he's not having this conversation to, to rob us of the gift and the joy of sex. But what Paul wants to do is give us the parameters on how we can get the most out of this gift, how we can experience it in the best way possible. Listen, I, I do recognize, I do recognize uh, the church has had a weird relationship with sexuality for a long time. In fact, the world would say the church, they are so judgmental of, 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 of everybody else and how they live. The church is only concerned about their morality and pushing their morality on other people. The church is concerned about fighting the moral war. Let me just remind us, uh, we talked about this a couple weeks ago. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 12, Paul says, as Christians, who are we to judge outsiders? As Christians, who are we to judge those who are non-Christians? Because here's the thing, here's the things. If somebody's not a Christian, there's no reason why we should expect them to live according to the word of God. There's no reason for us to expect that. Paul is writing this letter to Christians. He's writing this question, this, this, this section of Scripture to believers and saying, listen, to believers, you need to surrender to the Word of God. So if you are not a Christian, man, I don't want you to hear judgment this morning. I want you to hear the grace of God and the love of God. And I hope that you would consider God and His design of how we can experience the gift that He has given us. I pray that if you are non-Christian today, that you would hear a message of grace and love and maybe even receive that grace. But as Christians, I hope that we would recognize this is God's word for us. And as we surrender to him as our Lord and Savior, this is an area we need to surrender to him as well. So in our text today, uh, Paul is going to address uh, a couple things. He's going to address the idea of sexual immorality. Sexual immorality is simply the wrong use of the gift of sex. And then in chapter 7, Paul is going to give us the parameters on how we best experience the gift that God has given us. So he's going to start out talking about sexual immorality. And I thought as we start this conversation, let's just have a, a running definition of sexual immorality. Sexual immorality is simply sex outside of marriage between a male and a female. That is simply what it is. That if you are not married, then you should not be having sex. That means with your boyfriend and your girlfriend. That means even if it's casual. This includes pornography. Sexual immorality is any time you have sex outside of the confines of marriage. Now the question becomes, well, why, why is that an issue? Why is sexual immorality, why is it such an issue with God? We're going to get to that. Let's start out. 
He's going to start addressing, it starts out in this text, Paul's going to address maybe one of the uh, cultural attitudes in the city of Corinth. Here's what it says. Verse 1, the Corinthians say, all things are lawful for me. All things are permissible. It's okay. And Paul says, yes, but not all things are helpful. Corinthians say, uh, they say, well, all things are lawful for me. And Paul says, but I will not be dominated by anything. See, this idea where you see repeated twice, all things are lawful for me, that kind of became, became one of the slogans of the day of the, uh, of the culture in Corinth, where it advocated for them to have sexual freedom. I'm free sexually. I can do what I want. Saying the culture, the government, they don't, they don't prohibit this. So since they allow us to do it, I'm okay. I'm free to do it. It's not wrong. And Paul says, listen, just because it's legal doesn't mean it's moral. Just because the government approves of it does not mean that God does. And Paul actually makes a point in saying, that's not freedom. That's not freedom. We think freedom is doing whatever we want to do whenever we want to do it. With who? I mean, that's freedom, right? And Paul says, that's not freedom. You think about people who are addicted to pornography. Do you think they've experienced freedom? You think about people who are addicted and can't stop sleeping around. Do you think there's freedom in that? People who go from one negative relationship to another. Do you think there's freedom in that? Paul says, that's not freedom. That's not freedom. I'm not going to be, he says, I'm not going to be dominated by anything. Those things dominate us. Paul would help us to understand that freedom actually comes from self-control. Freedom comes from the ability to say, no, thank you. Nope, I'm not going to do that. I have the ability to control myself. Now, the Corinthians, because of their culture, they really push this idea of sexual freedom. And so they have another argument in verse 2. They say, well, don't you know that the food is for the stomach? And, and the stomach is for food. Basically, they're saying our sexual urges is just biology, right? It's just the way we're made. Kind of like when I'm hungry, I need to eat. When I'm thirsty, I need to drink. And so when I have these sexual urges, I just got to fulfill those urges. It's just the way we are. You almost have to hear this hint of, it's kind of like we're animals, right? We just do whatever we have the urge to do. This is where you have to understand that creation matters. Creation matters. We are not just highly evolved animals. In fact, Genesis chapter 1, in the very beginning, God said this. God says, uh, God created man in his own image. The image of God, he created man. See, you and I, we are not just animals left with our own urges to fulfill. We are created in the image of God, which means every one of us, we are image bearers of God. And by nature of being an image bearer, we have dignity, we have worth, we have value. And as an image bearer of God, as a creator, as a creation of God himself, here's what he says. Verse 13, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but it is meant for the Lord. Verse 14, as God raised the Lord, he will also raise us by his power. Verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall we take the members of Christ and make the members of a prostitute? Never. Verse 16, do you not know? Uh, <laughs> I got to read my text. Verse 16, or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, this is out of Genesis uh, chapter 1, the two shall become one flesh. 
but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one in spirit with him. In verse 19, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? See what Paul did right there? is Paul just made a, a revolutionary statement, a statement so, so, so radical in the culture. See, religions, this, makes, this is so different than every other religion on the face of the earth. In every, other, in every other religion, here's what happens. God, he lives in temples made by human hands. He doesn't live within us. Now, that's not the way it works. But God, God, he keeps his distance from, him, from us. He keeps his distance from us so he can judge us and, and do what he wants to do. He doesn't wrap himself into our lives. But that's not what Paul said. Paul said that, that the Holy Spirit actually lives within us, within our body. That within our body, we have God within us. Do you understand how radical that is? How great that is? I mean, honestly, we love that idea that God is always with us, right? When we go through a hardship, when we go through a difficult time, we love the idea, oh, I got to remember God's with me. We don't like that idea when we're sinning. Oh, no, no, God doesn't know that, right? No, this is so radical for us to consider the fact that, that God is within us. Paul would tell us, your body is actually not your own. We do not own our bodies. We are made in the image of God. God has chosen to live within you. God has, has, has chosen to redeem you, to resurrect your body. Your body is not your own. It was created and purchased and redeemed by God. And we might argue and say, well, this is my body. I'll, I'll do what I want to do. And Paul will say, who made your body? Oh, yeah, God did. And, and, and who came to live without sin and then came to die on the cross and to rise from the grave to redeem you and to redeem your body? Oh, yeah, that was Jesus who did that. And, and who will we spend eternity with in our resurrected body? Yeah, that's Jesus again. See, we didn't make our body. We don't redeem our body. We don't resurrect our body. Our bodies belong to God. In essence, our body is on loan from him. And God did not give us a body to do whatever we want to do. He gave us a body to glorify him. That is why we are here, so that we live a life that glorifies Him and gives honor and glory to Him. Our bodies are not our own. In fact, he goes even further, verse 19. He says, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. What's the price that God bought our bodies with? The death of Jesus on the cross, that is an incredible price. He bought us to redeem us to give us freedom. Let me ask you this. Has any sexual partner ever died for you? Does pornography offer us freedom? No, but here's Jesus, who's God in the flesh, who came to live a life and was tempted like us, but never sinned, who died and rose from the grave so we could be free, so we could be free. Free from having to view the creation as being things we worship. Free so we don't have to worship sex as God. Free so we don't have to worship money as God. Free so we don't have to worship pride as God. So we don't have to worship popularity as God. Free so we can worship him and, and live a life that honors and glorifies him. Jesus came to buy us our freedom so we don't have to be consumed with things that never fully satisfy because you ever found those things? 
Those false gods that we pursue and think, well, if I just get this, then everything will be right. If I just get enough money, man, then everything will be satisfied. And we worship money as God. But guess what? Is there ever enough? Is there ever enough? If I could just get to this financial spot, man, then I'd be made. Well, then you get there. Then it's, oh, well, I need to get to that one. Same thing with fame. Same thing with popularity. And same thing with sexual intimacy. Well, if I just get there, then I'll be set. And then it comes again, and it comes again, and it comes again. See, we were bought with a price so we could experience freedom, where we don't have to keep pursuing those things to try and fill us. That in freedom, we can be made whole and complete and be given peace from the Lord Jesus. Where no longer are we pursuing those things to satisfy us, now we're satisfied in God. See, as Christians, we need to view our body, and we need to view gender and sex differently than our culture because our bodies belong to God. Very simply put, and this is why sexual immorality is such an issue, because our bodies belong to God. And so God says, I want you to use this body in the way that I've called you to, in the ways that I've intended. And when we use our body in ways that God never intended, it dishonors him. It dishonors what he's accomplished for us. It dishonors what he's created us for. It brings shame upon him. It muddies his name. In fact, this is what Paul says when we are faced with sexual immorality. Here's the solution, verse 18. He says, flee. Flee from sexual immorality. But so often, that's not what we do. So often what we do is it's kind of like, like me up at the lake. I've got that fire pit. And I'm like, man, this is great. Let's see how close to the fire I can get. Let's see how big of a fire I can build before it gets out of control. And we see going on the edge, we see how close I can get to the edge before I fall off. And Paul says, that's not the way to live. Don't see how close you can get. Don't see how far you can go. When you come around it, flee, run, get away. Do what you have to do to, to be free from sexual immorality. It's dangerous. Protect yourself. So Paul begins this passage and he warns us against sexual immorality because our bodies belong to God and he's given us our bodies to glorify him. And here's the thing. When we start having a conversation in the church about sexual immorality, it almost becomes easier for us to think, well, well God is against sex. Sex is bad. We shouldn't talk about it. We shouldn't think about it. Sex is bad. But look at the way Paul addresses it. He says in chapter 7, verse 1, Paul says, Now concerning the matters that you wrote, so they'd written him a letter with a question, and they said, It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. What does he mean there? Let me just pause right there. What he means is he's saying, uh, If you're not married, it is good that you do not have sexual relations with someone else. Very simply. He's saying, Don't have sexual morality. Very simply, that's what he's saying. But verse 2 says, because of the temptation of sexuality, each man should have his own wife, and the woman should have her own husband. Notice Paul doesn't condemn sex. Sex is clear. Sex is a gift from God. Scripture doesn't condemn sex. Simply, it condemns sex outside of marriage. See, the church, the church gets such a bad rap as being, oh, those Christians, they're against sex. They're against the enjoyment of sex. Listen, we're not against sex. God's not against sex. He's just for marriage. 
See, we spend more time talking about what the church is against instead of talking about what the church is for. God's not against sex. He's just for marriage. He wants you to experience the gift of sex within the confines of marriage. Now then the question becomes, well, all right, but what do I do with my urges? What do I do with my temptations? And this is what Paul said. He answered that. He said, because of the temptations for sexual immorality, because of that, you ought to go off and get married. Now, that doesn't mean you run off and marry the first person you find. What he means is you need to work towards marriage. You need to aspire towards marriage. What does it look like for you to aspire towards marriage? It means you need to spend some time walking with Jesus and growing your faith, growing your relationship with him. Aspiring to marriage means, gentlemen, you might have to cut your hair. Girls, you might have to do some curls and some different things. It means you're going to dress a little bit nicer. Maybe you'll save a little bit money. You need to become marriage material. Think about it that way. You need to focus on becoming marriage material. And then, once you focus on becoming marriage material, this is how you aspire to marriage. Then you go to church and you start talking to the single people. You actually have to talk to them. Maybe you have to go to that website, christiansinglesslookingformarriage.com and begin applying yourself and putting yourself out there. Paul's saying, listen, if you've, got, if you've got sexual desires and sexual temptation, the goal is not to look for sex. The goal is to look for a marriage partner. God's not against sex. He's for marriage. And Paul says, if you've got these temptations, these, these, these struggles, you've got this lust inside of you, then prepare yourself for marriage. Aspire to marriage. Aspire to that. Don't look for sex. Look for marriage. Now let me ask you this. How many of you are are married couples in here. Because now Paul is going to talk to married couples. This is where it's going to get fun. Verse 3, it says, The husband, the husband should give his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. See, the key, the key, to, the health, to, the key to a healthy marriage, the key to a healthy sex life within the parameters of marriage is that spouses serve one another. That is the key. That the husband sacrifices and serves his wife, and the wife sacrifices and serves her husband. Listen, this happens in all areas of marriage. This happens in the home. This happens in the kitchen, where where a spouse might say, hey, you know what? Because I love my spouse, I'm going to go and sacrifice and serve and go do the dishes because it's going to bless them. This happens at night when you're watching TV. You're like, man, we're going to watch The Crown again? We're going, to watch, we're going to watch whatever show it happens to be, but we sacrifice and we serve our spouse by saying, you pick the show and I'll watch whatever it is you want to watch tonight. This is what happens, this is what happens with chores. You say, man, because I love you, I'm going to sacrifice and serve you and do things I don't want to do. And Paul says that the same thing in the bedroom, that a healthy marriage, a healthy sex life is spouses that sacrifice and serve one another. Do you see how that is so different than sexual immorality? See, sexual immorality, when you think about, well, I've just got this urge, I've got to fulfill my urge. What's that rooted in? Selfishness. It's rooted in me and and my needs and, and my feelings, and so I'm going to pursue this because it's going to fill me. It's all about me. Think about this. Think about all the ways that that plays all the way that plays out. Pornography. 
Is pornography there to serve and to sacrifice to someone else? Or is it all about you and your needs and your feelings in the moment? See, the best sex that we will experience is when married spouses sacrifice and serve one another. Where intimacy is not about you and about you getting your needs met. It's about you loving and serving and sacrificing for your spouse. See, isn't this the essence of what Christianity is about? Isn't that what it teaches us? It's not about me. And so in marriage, I come into this relationship and I say, listen, this intimacy is not about me getting my needs meet. It's about me meeting your needs and serving you. In fact, Paul's going to carry on this idea about serving and sacrificing your spouse. He says in verse 4, The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, the wife does. Gentlemen, here's what that means. Gentlemen, I'll specifically. That means when your wife says, man, I, I want to cuddle. And you're like, I don't want to cuddle. Guess what you're doing? You're cuddling. You're cuddling. That's what you're doing. Why? Because it's not just about you and your wants and your needs. It's about your spouse. That means when your wife says, I want you to hold my hand, I want you to rub my back, I want you to engage my heart, that means, gentlemen, your body is not your own. So you're going to meet those, 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 those intimate needs your wife needs. Goes, go, goes vice versa. That we are recognizing this body is not my own. I'm going to share it with my spouse. And so when she has a need that needs to be met, I'm going to, I'm going to engage into it. I'll tell you, one of the things I love about my wife, this is what she does. Uh, She goes off and goes shopping and and picks up, you know, jeans or picks up whatever it is. And then she tries it on for me and says, do you like this? Do you like this? Do you like how this looks on me? Why? Because she recognizes her body is not her own. She wants to look good for me. She wants to, to dress in ways that I find her attractive. And likewise, I wear deodorant. I cut my toenails because this is her body. This is her body. I'm going to dress it and I'm going to care for, a way, care for it in a way that she will enjoy it. So what happens in marriage. This is where a healthy intimacy and sexuality comes from. When it's not about me, it's about me sacrificing and serving my spouse. And the gift of sex is best found not when we're selfish. Not when it's about me and myself and what I want and what I need, but when I am sacrificing and serving my spouse. That's where the best intimacy is found. In fact, Paul includes a warning in verse 5. Paul says, Do not deprive each other, except in mutual consent for a time so you can devote yourselves to prayer, and then you come together again so Satan will not tempt you, because you lack self-control. Think about, think about the reasons that God gave us sex. God gave us sex so we can have children. That's from Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. God gave us sex so we could experience oneness. That's Genesis chapter 2. The book of uh, Song of Solomon, it talks about God giving us a gift of sex for enjoyment. There's all these reasons that God gave us sex. But here, uh, Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 is giving us another reason why God has given us the gift of sex. And it is for protection from one, it protects one another from sexual immorality. Because if a spouse is not serving one another and meeting each other's needs, it leads us 
uh, being vulnerable for sexual temptation. See, here's what happens. Here's what happens. When when, When a man's emotional and physical needs are not met, when their needs are not being met, what happens is Satan often will bring another gal along who gives that man compliments and pays a little attention to him, and guess what happens? That leads down a path that becomes dangerous. Likewise, a husband is distracted and not giving you the attention to his spouse that she deserves and she needs. He's not engaging her heart, not meeting her emotional needs, and that becomes a door for Satan to bring along another man who fancies her, who encourages her, who compliments her. And the next thing you know, they find themselves in a spot that they never imagined they would be in. Listen, let me just make sure I I make this clear. It's not your fault if your spouse has an affair and your spouse cheats on you. But Paul is making this case that consistent physical and emotional intimacy, it protects the relationship. It protects the relationship. It's not just physical, it's physical and emotional. Consistent physical and emotional intimacy, it protects the relationship. And so because of that, because Paul recognizes how important it is, Paul says, listen, there might be occasions where you can't have this physical connection. And when that happens, it needs to be for a purpose. Might be sickness, might be travel, might be the marriage is in trouble and you've got to seek some outside help to to restore the health and the relationship. But it's for a predetermined set of time with full intention of resuming normal intimacy before Satan can come in and create a wedge and get in the way. See, Paul is writing to a culture very much like ours that has a skewed idea of sex. And so Paul wants to say, man, here's what God would warn us of. Here's what God would tell us. Number one is to, to warn ourselves away from sexual immorality because our bodies were bought with a price. Our bodies are not our own. God calls us to glorify him with our bodies. So what we do with our bodies, it matters. So there's the warning, and then he offers us this encouragement. He offers us encouragement that sex is a gift to be enjoyed within the parameters of marriage between a man and a woman. And when we understand the parameters that God has given us, then God will bless it. It'll be amazing when we experience what God has given to us. I recognize we just had a rather awkward conversation at church about sex. And we find ourselves in a little bit of a unique situation because here in 2021, our culture is not different, not very different than the culture at Corinth. And our culture, sexual freedom and sexual morality is something to be welcomed and celebrated. Honest, our culture, man, how many of us, how, how many people in our culture have been sold on the idea that sex is to be worshipped? Sex is a God and you can do whatever you want to do. And many of us are probably finding ourselves like the Corinthians. All right, God, I'm trying to follow you. I'm trying to follow you. I want to be obedient to you. But man, this culture has sold me on this idea that sex is such a big deal and I'm trying to, to navigate how I follow you but also try and wrestle with sexuality and how I'm supposed to view this. And it's hard because our culture is so against the way that God would call us to live. But here's the good news. Here's the good news. Christianity is a religion for those who have blown it. 
right? Christianity is not a religion for perfect people. It's not a religion for the goody two-shoes. It's not just a righteous people who get the kingdom of God. In fact, Scripture says all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And there are some of us that are sitting in here and saying, yes, I've sinned in sexual immorality. I've sinned in this area. And other of us are saying, well, I haven't sinned in that way, but I've sinned in these other ways. I've sinned through pride, through greed, through anger. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. And the message of Christianity, the message of Christianity is not that you need to try and be a good person. Not that you need to follow all the rules. The message of Christianity is not to try harder. The message of Christianity is that Christ lived a sinless life as an example to us. The life that we couldn't live. The message of Christianity is that Christ paid our debt for sin. He died for our sin. And he rose from the grave to forgive us of our sin. The message of Christianity is God set the Holy Spirit to live in with, to live within us so we can say no to sin and yes to God. So I want you to hear today, above everything else, I want to assure you that God loves sinners. That God forgives sinners. That your sin does not have to define you. Yet today as we are confronted with the wisdom of God, recognize that often the wisdom of God is contrary to the wisdom of our culture. And God, out of love for us, because he loves us, because he cares about us, because he sacrificed his son to, to redeem us, out of that love and concern for us, he's saying, listen, I've given you the gift of sex for your good. It's for your good. Just as we love to give gifts to our kids, God loves to give us good gifts. But God would warn us that sex is not God itself. Sex is not to be worshipped. We're to worship God. And we're to surrender to his will and to his plans for our lives. Which means today, if you are a single person here today, Do you recognize the standard that God has given for you? That sex is to be joyed within the parameters of marriage between a male and a female. And some of that is going to be, as single people, we're going to have to say, man, I know that this is what the culture says. I know, I know this is what my friends say. I know this is what everybody else is doing. And you're going to have to choose to say, I'm going to surrender to God. This may be the way that everybody else says to live, but I'm going to choose because I've been bought with a price, because of the sacrifice and what God has done for me, I'm going to choose to surrender myself to his will. Say, God, I will live the way that you're asking me to live. Listen, God is not against you. God is not against you having sex. He's for you being married. Which means that maybe for you, instead of selfishly pursuing your own satisfaction, maybe you need to start pursuing marriage. What steps do you need to take to be the best possible spouse? Are you growing in your faith? Are you becoming someone uh, that somebody else would be drawn to and want to be married to? In fact, I think about this. This is why I think your faith is so important as a single person. You know what the fruit of the Spirit are? The fruit of the Spirit are these things that as we are walking with God, these are the characteristics of Christianity. 
This is what it looks like to be a Christian. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, meekness, self-control. Listen, is there anything more attractive? Is there anything more attractive than somebody who is loving and joyful and full of peace and patient and kind and good and gentle and meek and has self-control? And that's a person that's like, man, they're hot. I want some of that. Listen, grow in those things and watch as God opens doors for you. If you are married, let me ask you this question. Are your interactions, not your spouse's interactions, are your interactions with your spouse, are they characterized by sacrificial service? Is that how your spouse would characterize your interactions with them? Are you demanding? Are you unwilling to give and to serve? See, the greatest fulfillment, the greatest fulfillment is not in seeking your own needs, our own desires, our own wants. Our greatest fulfillment is when we serve and sacrifice for one another. Now, I know some of us are in here today and saying, well, that's great. That's great, Pastor. But my, my spouse, they don't serve and sacrifice for me. They don't do this for me. They're a jerk. Why should I serve and sacrifice for them? Listen, I agree with you. Your spouse is a jerk. They don't deserve it. I agree with you. And can I just say, you don't deserve it either. See, the example of Christ is that he loved first. We didn't deserve his grace. We didn't deserve his, his forgiveness. But he chose to love us first, even while we were off sinning. God gave first. God loved first. Man, this is a greater responsibility for you. To love first. Even if it's not returned. Even if they don't honor and respect and make you feel good. You sacrificially serve again and again and again. And this is for both spouses. This is a challenge, is that you would love sacrificially, that you would sacrificially serve your spouse and watch as you consistently do this, not because you're getting anything in return, because this is what God calls us to. Watch as you serve sacrificially as God changes your heart and as God changes the heart of your spouse where all of a sudden they're like, why are you being so good to me? And watch as God does something miraculous in your marriage. Finally, let me just close with this. Recognize on a, on a topic like this. Listen, if you're struggling in some sort of way, would you reach, reach out to us? Reach out to the church? See, in the body of Christ, we belong to one another. We need one another. That in the body of Christ, we have brothers and sisters that we can walk alongside, we can help, and we can support. The worst thing that we can do, the worst thing that we can do, which is the thing we so often do, is think, nobody else can know about this. I'm going to keep this to myself. I'm going to struggle in this all by myself because I don't want anybody else to know. Listen, I promise you, everybody in this room is a sinner. Everyone in this room is somebody that is a sinner. 
And when we can just get over the fact that we sin, and there's uh, opportunities for us to, to walk alongside one another. You don't have to struggle alone. There's help and there's support for you, whatever you're struggling with. If you're struggling with sexual addiction, then reach out. Reach out. Let's talk. There's help. There's accountability. There's support. There's resources. There's, there's things that we can do to walk alongside you to help you overcome this. If your marriage is struggling, listen, don't wait. Please do not wait until things are, are at the very end where there's no hope. If your marriage is struggling, reach out. Let's have a conversation. Let's get you some help. Let's get you some resources to strengthen that relationship, that marriage, before things are completely on the rocks. This is what the body of Christ does. If you're struggling in any of these areas, sexual immorality, struggling in your marriage, man, shoot me an email this week. Shoot me a text. Reach out to somebody else. Say, let's have some conversations. I need to get some help with this before things get worse off. Recognize this is not the kind of message we often hear in church. But I think it's a message we need to hear. That God loves us. God has plans for us. He's asking us to surrender to his will, to the way that he's calling us to live. Not to rob us of joy, not to rob us of anything, but to give us the best of what he can offer. And ultimately, again, I don't want you to hear judgment. I want you to hear grace. I want you to hear the grace of God. That if you've screwed up in these areas, there is grace and there is forgiveness. You don't have to be defined by those things. Let's pray.